good to see you all here today. A few new faces. If you're here as a visitor, again, just want to welcome you. We are we're right kind of kind of towards the latter end of a sermon series. I've been preaching through the book of Exodus, uh, which if you're new to the Bible, uh, it's the second book of the Bible. It's early on in uh, the history of, uh, of the Bible as far as God and his working with his people. And this morning we're, we're looking at, a, at, at an excellent passage. I mean, they're, they're all excellent in their own right. But this morning we're in Exodus chapter 12. So if you brought a Bible with you, you're welcome to open that or, or turn that, that app on to Exodus chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, that's all right. Uh, you won't be ousted from here. Uh, we'll have the words projected from you. Uh, we did just get a new stock of free Bibles to give away, though. So uh, if, if any of you are interested in free Bibles, we've got, uh, we've got plenty of those to give away if you'd like to take one of those from us today. Before we read the text, um, some of you have been following my three-year saga of the backyard. Um, if you follow me on social media, you've already rejoiced with us. Uh, the Veramontis backyard got a makeover this weekend. Um, thank you. Yeah, appreciate that. Um, we, uh, I, I've, I've often, I've often aired out my grievances about my lack of ability to, to grow grass. So, so Jack, I'm not a green thumb. I'm not a green anything. Um, but, but, but I've, I've, I, over the three years that we've lived in this particular home with this particular backyard, I have frequently casted visions and delights in my mind of what our backyard had the potential to be. Um, I, I knew it had great potential. Um, I saw it. I frequently talked about it. Um, but until yesterday, it had never come to fruition. And so yesterday, um, we, had, we had a crew of guys come out and, and they installed, I know I'm going to be shamed for this, but we're, we're doing AstroTurf in our yard. Okay, so th- is that out of the system now? Does everybody feel better now? But as they piece together our AstroTurf, which is going to be fantastic and you're all going to want some, um, but as they piece together the AstroTurf, I-, I literally sat at my kitchen window and watched them unfold the plan that has always been in my mind. I- I- like eating popcorn, literally, I had some popcorn at one point. I was literally watching the plan unfold in ways that I... I never thought would have happened in my greatest dreams. Um, the historical event of the Exodus, and specifically what we're going to read and discuss today, um, is, is a bit of the barren yard of the Old Testament. It had potential, but it was, it was pointing to a, a greater and better reality that would come in its fullness with the arrival of Jesus. So today, what we're going to watch happen, and I, and I hope to do one of my goals of this sermon, is to watch the plan piece by piece unfold, ultimately climaxing in what Jesus came to do for us on the cross. And so with that said, and with my backyard in your minds, let's now read Exodus chapter 12. I'll begin in verse 1, and I'm going to read through verse 28 uh, this morning. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, 
Then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight." And then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you, On the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For, se- for seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread. And when Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that's in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that's in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of this house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. And then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, 
So they did. This ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask him to bless now the preaching of it. Father in heaven, we pray that the meditations of every heart gathered here today in the mouth of this one man, the, the words of this one man's mouth would be pleasing to you, O Lord. You are our rock. You are our redeemer. May it be so. Amen. There are many ways in which parents um, mark milestones of growth for their children. Uh, you know, talking and walking and eating different foods, all, all valid forms of growth milestones. For me, uh, when our boys round corners and milestones in life, one of those for me was their ability uh, to play hide and seek to all new levels. Now, let me just refresh your memory of what hide-and-seek is like in the early years if if you're not there. Um, Hide-and-seek is usually hiding in plain sight uh, for small amounts of time and then ultimately probably just giving yourself up even if if the parent's playing along with the the game. Um, What I've noticed, our boys are now eight and six, what I've noticed is the boys have escalated their hide-and-seek abilities in two ways. They hide much better and they hide much longer, Right? Uh, sometimes to the point where your heart is, is skipping a beat, like, have I lost one of them? I don't know. Um, but, but, you know, a couple weeks ago, we're, we're playing just around the house, and they've, they've just found some downright good spots in our home to hide, and, and they're good. They, they will stay there quiet until I find them. And it's fun. Um, scary at times, but fun most of the time. Um, hu- humanity... Uh, the human race, for, for the entire course of its existence, has actually been playing hide-and-seek with God. Um, in Genesis 3, if, you're, if you're, uh, you, know, you, you frequent the Bible, you know that story. The very first thing that uh, people did when they rebelled against God was they began playing hide-and-seek with Him. Uh, refresher course, uh, God and humans live in the Garden of Eden in perfect fellowship together. Uh, Adam and Eve have now uh, taken of the forbidden tree and they're, 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 they're sinful in their nature and in their choice. And the first thing they do is they hide themselves in the bushes, right? Like you can, like a, like you can actually hide from God. Uh, but they begin that. And, and what we see in the pattern of, of, of biblical history and in the pattern of our own lives is we are trying to play hide and seek with God all of the time. Let me see um, if I can find some of your hiding spots. Um, we hide from God in our busyness a lot. We are an extremely busy culture. Uh, I, I would argue, you know, with the advance of communication and technology and internet, all that stuff that we hear the demise of, it has made us busier than we have ever been. We are, we're expected to be at all places at all times for all people. And in the midst of that busyness, we've created this culture where we can, we can hide. We're too busy. Um, another, I think, common hiding spot where we, where we hide from God is in just the, the triviality of life or kind of the, the entertainment um, of life, right? Like we live... We are a culture who lives to be entertained. American culture particularly. We are notorious for loving entertainment. We'll spend large amounts of money for it. Uh, We will invest large amounts of time for it. That's not my truck. That's good. Um, It does that on occasion. Um, 
and, and there's this kind of this, this consumption with surface level triviality and entertainment wherein we find ourselves hiding from heavy, weighty things, transcendent things like God. Another hiding spot, which you might find odd, is we hide from God in religion. Um, the very thing we're doing now can be one of the safest, we think, spots for us to hide from God. And I'm in church. I'm reading my Bible. I'm praying. I'm doing all of these things, but in the midst of the busy and fr- frantic religious religiosity of our lives, what we're actually doing is, is hiding from God. We've created a God after our own imagination who's simply there to, to stroke egos or to make us feel better about ourselves. Um, see, God actually, he's into hide and seek. <laughs> um, this passage actually tells us to hide um, from God, but specifically he tells us where to hide. Um, and Israel, I mean, you think about it, the Israelites, we've been, we've been kind of in this narrative with them for now a number of months. You've got to imagine that Israel is hiding from God in the narrative of their suffering. Uh, and it would sound something like this. Uh, life is terrible. A lot of hard things have come my way. Um, I'm sick, I'm broken, I'm suffering, I'm hurting. And in in that line of reasoning is this justification that God, somehow you owe me something. The Israelites would have been there. And God, God knows that, he resonates with that, and he provides the best hiding spot for his people. This event, um, like bar none, I think is, is, is kind of the event that has striking parallels to what Jesus came to do for us perpetually and eternally as his people. Um, I'll talk, we're going we're gonna to kind of talk a little, we're just going to unpack, here, here's how we're going to do it today. I'm just going to unpack some of this passage for us to make sure we're on the same page that the Israelites were. So here's the things we're going to look at today, four things. We're going to look at the substitute first, we're going to look at the ceremony itself, and then actually I think I chopped a point. We're actually going to do three points, the significance finally. So Scratch the statute, guys. The substitute uh, first. Let's look, at, let's look at the substitute that God provides. Notice in verse 2 uh, that this event was to mark the beginning of the, of the year for them. He said this will be the beginning of months for the Israelites. So most scholars identify this to be March and April for us. So it would have been this time of the year. Um, and it was, it was commonly called Nisan, uh, was the name of the month. And it was on the 10th day that these events would take place. And so God really at the outset is beginning to show the Israelites how their entire lives and the history of their lives would be marked by redemption. That... that, that Everything would be on the timeline of how God has rescued them in such extravagant ways as he's about to do. Um, We see that the the lamb is to be provided for a household. Um, I love how the Lord says, listen, um, if you don't have a a large home, uh, get your neighbor, bring them in. Uh, the whole lamb is to be consumed. No leftovers tonight, guys. Um, this was, this was kind of one of the ways in which God was saying, like, this atonement, this sacrifice is going to be sufficient. 
It's going to be whole. It's going to be complete. And we're going to consume it all here tonight. And so most people think, most commentators think that uh, a lamb would have fed uh, as small as 10 people to up to 30 people. So, you know, this isn't like small potatoes kind of microwave meal. This this begins, begins to be a corporate thing. So certainly there were larger families that a lamb would have been sufficient for them, but this also begins to initiate this conversation that God's people would begin relating to redemption corporately, together. And um, and we, we see the lamb, the substitute itself, God's very specific, it has to be unblemished. So it has to be clean, perfect. Um, it has to be... Um, male and a year old, they usually think that that's, uh, most, most scholars are kind of saying, hey, that's kind of when you can tell if a lamb is going to have blemishes or not. Um, and so it comes in at a year old, it's got to be a male. And if you noticed, it's in the home for four days. So get, find your lamb, bring it in the home on the 10th of the month, and then we'll eat it on the 14th. So I mean, you just, you, you imagine, I mean, Fluffy's hanging around the house here, guys. I mean, honestly, like Fluffy's at the house now, uh, kids, kids are playing with Fluffy, um, and, and it becomes part of the culture of the home, but, but Fluffy's life is coming to an end here in a minute. And, um, and, and what we see God beginning to do is teaches people that redemption, redemption comes by mathematics. He's, he's teaching us redemption by substitution, but but you and I do redemption by mathematics all the time in different ways, and so did the Israelites. We do, we do redemption by, by addition a lot. And so it'd be like what God has provided in Jesus, what we ultimately, spoiler alert, this lamb is about Jesus, but I'll get there. Um, it's Jesus plus something I have to offer to God, right? It's, it's Jesus plus I'll add kind of a component or something additional, or kind of an above and beyond that in case it's not enough. We also do redemption by subtraction a lot. And so it's, yeah, what Jesus has done, minus I've got to do this, I've got to take away this, I've got to not do this. And so we kind of begin the, the bullet point list of things that, you know, maybe God hasn't even told us not to do. Um, but, but we begin to subtract things. Um, God, is, God is showing us right here that substitution was always the way that God would redeem his people. That he would provide someone in their place to do what they couldn't do for themselves. And it shows itself clearly and plainly in this lamb. This substitute who would cover for the sins of the family. So that's, that's the substitute. But let's, let's look next at the ceremony itself. Um, I want to get too graphic here, but I think a little bit of, of graphic language would be helpful for us. Uh, the, the, the lamb is in the home, um, is now put to death. Um, it, would be, it would have been through the slicing of the throat. Um, it would have been a very bloody death. Um, the blood would have been poured out into a basin. That's what the text identifies. And it's said that the father is to take the blood with hyssop, which was a type of branch, and to spread it on the entrance of the door. So the, the, the entrance of the home, it's the doorposts and the lentil. So the two doorposts and the top 
were to be smeared and covered with blood. And this um, is significant in the Bible. Um, blood has all kinds of meaning. Um, I'll, I'll kind of give the synopsis of it. Um, two things. One, blood was related to, to what it meant to be in what we call a covenant or in a, in a promise commitment with God. So if you, if you kind of rewind back to Genesis chapter 15, when God made a promise to one person, Abraham, he said, take all these animals, split them in half, bloody ceremony. If you don't keep your ends of the bargain, here's what, or if I don't keep my end of the bargain, here's what will happen to me. And God says, if you don't keep your end of the bargain, he puts Abraham to sleep and God walks through. He says, I'll take care of the rest. And so it was tied to this idea of what it meant to be in relationship with God, blood. But, but blood was also where the life was found. So the life of a creature was found in the blood. There wasn't anything DNA significant to it, but it was symbolic. And the way that the narrative talks about it is it was a sign. It was a marker. We'll get there in a minute. But look at, look at the way the meal was to be prepared. You know, the central feature of this night was the meal, the Passover meal. Um, says that the meat was to be ro- roasted. God was very particular in, in the manner in which the, the sacrifice would be prepared. Roasted, not boiled in water and not eaten raw. That, that was an attack against ancient Near Eastern Egyptian gods who were into raw meat. Um, kind of like, you know, maybe sushi or rare steaks before that was a thing. And this was God saying, uh, this was God saying no to the idolatry of the Egyptians. Listen, this is how my people will do it. It'll be differently. Um, he says to do it with unleavened bread, which was to signify there's no time for the bread to leaven. We don't have time to wait for it to rise. This is to be a quick departure out of Egypt. We'll talk more about the leaven here in a moment. And then it was to be also eaten with bitter herbs, which is symbolic of the bitterness of life in bondage. All right, so the Egyptians have now been in bondage for 430 years is what the text tells us. And so the bitterness of these herbs was to remind them of what it means and what it tastes and feels like to be in bondage to be enslaved, to be trapped. And God, in verses 12 and 13, says this. He says, the blood is the sign. He says, I will see that blood. Now, you know, I, I do this a lot. Like, could God have just, you know, could he have just kind of just said, oh, I know, I mean, he knew these families. He knew the Israelites were. Could he have just, like, address markers or something? Why, why all of that? Um, there, there's something about the symbolism behind God seeing the blood and passing over. Uh, think, think about it this way. When you go to a, a restaurant, uh, menu, menu open, and, and you see, there's probably several types of people in this room, but you see those little special symbols next to some of the items. You ever see those? And immediately you probably do two things. One is you've you got to find the glossary or the index, right? Like, what does this wild chicken represent? And like, I don't know. And so you've got you've to kind of look and see what is this symbolizing? And then if you're like me, usually it's, it's, it's the chef's pick, right? It's like, this is what I make best. So you ought to order it. Now, now, I trust chefs. You might not. But usually, I'll order one of those signified items. When I see the sign, I, I'm immediately moved to, to, to activity. I'm immediately moved to my choice. Well, that's exactly what the blood's doing. 
It's exactly what the lamb is being offered as. God is saying, when I see that, my motive and my activity towards you is to pass over you in mercy. And so God begins to act on his people based on the sign in which they're hiding under. He would see the blood and he would pass over the home. Now, the significance of this, this is the third thing and I kind of want to spend most of our time here. The significance of this event cannot be overstated. Um, listen, next, next week, um, or actually the following, we're going to look at kind of the, 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 the Passover meal, its connection to what's going on up here at the Lord's table. And so I'm not just glossing over that. We're, we're going to come back and address that. Um, but if you'll notice with me in verse 14, um, there were three different ways that God begins to describe the Passover. He describes it, at least in my translation, as a memorial, a feast, and a statute. Okay? And so what, what he's beginning to do is, is elevate this event um, to astronomical levels. Like, believer, there is no overestimating the significance of what God's doing here. And what we see... Um, God requiring of us is the response in verses 14 to 20. And the response is in the following feast, the feast of unleavened bread. Now, just a couple nuts and bolts about that. We picked up as we read, this was a seven-day feast. Now, remember, just disclaimer here, this is before God has established the law on Sinai. So God's people don't have a set of rules and regulations that they're following on. But God seems to be working and operating according to this Sabbath to Sabbath principle. Did you notice that? It was like at the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, no work, none whatsoever. And at the end of it, no work, none whatsoever. So early on, again, they don't have a law. They don't have Sabbath regulations, but early on you begin to see God establish this pattern of rest and worship framed by activity and rest and worship. And what we see is he tells them, remove all the leaven from your homes. Don't consume any leaven for these seven days. Now, that's strange. It might not be strange to those of us that are gluten-free. Like that, that was the only kind of parallel I could see. It's like, I don't, I don't really know what leaven is or gluten is, um, but I just both know that they were bad. Um, but, but, but leaven, um, really in the, in, the, in the scriptures, leaven represented something. It represented sin. Um, y- you'll... Y- you'll know that, that leaven in this feast um, represented something that needed to be removed from God's people. It was, it was symbolic. There was nothing dietarily wrong with the leaven, but God was symbolically saying, here's how we respond to what I'm about to do by redeeming you. Remove sin from your life. Um, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament uh, he was dealing with a, uh, we'll just put it this way, a, um, a promiscuous church, um, to put it lightly. Uh, there was all kinds of uh, inappropriate physical relationships going on in that church. And in 1 Corinthians, which is um, 
his, one of his letters that we have. In chapter 5, Paul takes this principle of leaven and he applies it to the church. He says this. He says, don't you know that a little bit of leaven leavens throughout the whole lump? Just a little bit goes in all of it. And Paul says, cleanse out the old leaven that you might be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, and here's the language that's so important to us, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So what Paul and what I think God is doing by giving us this feast right after this event is showing us the only appropriate response to being redeemed is to set yourselves apart, is to remove sin, it's to be different. Um, now I know, um, I know because I talk to many of you, I know the guilt and the shame of sin um, plagues all of us. Um, it, is, it is the thing that always seems to be there, the, the reminder of all reminders of our, just how truly messed up we are. And um, it would be, I think it would be easy for, you know, preacher man up front to just kind of say, hey, you know, take your sin out of your life. Look what Jesus has done for you. And I, I know we've all heard some form of that package to us, right? Like, look at everything Jesus did and look how you're living. Now be a better person. And, and I just think that's very dismissive and condescending and actually pretty unbiblical. Um, you and I, um, we try all kinds of different ways to remove this guilt that plagues us. We do. Um, we, we plunge ourselves deeper and deeper into it, thinking that that'll make it feel normal. And so one, one response to sin in our lives is just to, just to go all in with it and just, just see if it just becomes normal. Um, others of us are kind of the do-gooders, try-harders, turn a new leaf over, and we think that somehow we can form or fashion a new pattern of living that will make us feel better, like that guilt is gone. And others of us just numb ourselves to it. Quite honestly, we just stop thinking about it. It's plagued us for so long that I don't even want to give thought to it. I'll go to church um, I'll, I'll do the bare minimum, but I'm not going to put the hard work of thinking about the leaven in my life. And, and here's, here's what I think we need to hear this morning. I think most, if, if not all of us, in many ways think um, that God is just ready to just unsheath his sword on you. Like, like if, you just, if you just continue if you just continue down this pattern, like God is just going to take out the sword and undo you. Um, and, and the believer in Jesus needs to know this today. If you've heard nothing I've said today, hear this. The sword has already been unsheathed. Um, the sword was already thrown onto somebody else. 
See, there was, a, there was another substitute who, who would come and he would hold divine justice up. Um, his cousin, Jesus' cousin, uh, when he, John the Baptist, so sorry, that was kind of, that was kind of weird. Um, John the Baptist uh, was out in the wilderness preparing for the arrival of Jesus' earthly ministry. Now, he knew about Jesus. He was talking about his king, coming kingdom. But do you remember the first time that, that John the Baptist was out in the wilderness and Jesus was approaching to be baptized and to begin his earthly ministry the way he, he saw him? John, John said this. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What, what was coming to John and to us was the Passover lamb. It was the one who would be slain so that his people would not feel the heat of wrath and justice that was coming their way. It was the one who, by faith alone, the one who beholds this lamb God would see them and pass over them. Let me, let me close. I want to read another passage from the Gospel of John. This was, um, this was at the end of Jesus' life. And uh, he's, he's on the cross being slain as the Lamb of God. He's being, he's being slaughtered um, so that we would have coverage. And he, he says this, um, well, the, John writes this. He says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. And since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, and they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Jesus Christ was the eternal Passover lamb who bled to cleanse his people so that judgment would pass over them. And I just want us to close by asking ourselves this. How am I hiding from that? Um, your sin has been fully dealt with, believer. Believer. Justice has been rendered on another. The hiding place has been offered to you. See, the God who has been seeking out you your entire life has provided the perfect hiding spot in his son Jesus. It's the only safe and secure place. And it's where life and joy forevermore are discovered. So believer... An unbeliever, if you're here today, would you run to that hiding place? Would you stop running from God and would you hide from him in the very place that he's provided for you 
through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are so guilty, so guilty of trying to run and hide from you. On the surface, it just sounds just stupid uh, that we think we could hide from you, Lord. You're a God who sees and knows everything. Uh, but Lord, we, we hide. We hide in our guilt and in our shame and in our busyness and in our love for money. We hide in our entertainment. We hide in our children. We hide in romance and promiscuity. Lord, there are just so many hiding places that you look at us and uh, I, just, I just imagine you're that father uh, who, just, who just wants his children to hide in the right place. So, so Lord, we pray that you would help us as a church uh, to stop running from you and to just hide in the place you've provided for us in your son, Jesus. Lord, help us to find refuge from our guilt. Help us to find cleansing from our sin and help us to stay there. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.